comes from John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's uh, start with a little puzzle. And I know for some of you right now, you, you feel some anxiety rising up in you because puzzles are not your thing. Um, and, and here it is, and you'll have to forgive me if you are unable to see this. Um, this, is, this is the picture here. Would you just read these uh, aloud from my right to my left? So from your left to right. Let's just read these aloud. Well done. Well done. We're off to a good start here this morning, folks. Uh, did you notice anything as you read through those? Oh. Come on now. Is that you, Joe? Yeah, yeah, you would. Uh, you would notice that. Yeah, as Joe just told us, there are, there's a repeated word in each of those little triangles. <gasps> oh. Now, okay, so what's, what's the point of sharing this? You see, um, according to Alan Castle, who's a, psycholo a psychology professor at UCLA, who designed this brain puzzle and other ones like him, uh, our mind literally mutes those words. The, the repeated words are muted because they're redundant and familiar in, with those, those statements. We know those. Bird in the hand. I don't know. Like, so we just skip over the redundancy. This is a whole process known as habituation. And habituation is a technical way to basically talk about over-familiarity. For example, our house, not like our collective house is in the Lord's house, this place here, but my house is old. It's over 100 years old and um, Apparently, as old homes settle, uh, cracks start to appear. Or what I've recently learned are called drywall pops, that the drywall is literally coming out, and so there's these little things that pop out of the paint, which is where the screw should be. I have done nothing about these, and I generally forget about them until one of my boys are digging at them with their fingers, and I find the debris on the floor. Um, I have habituated myself to no longer noticing these. But if you were to come over and share a meal, it's likely uh, that you would notice, or at least I'm assuming if you're seeing the world in a similar way to me, um, that you would see these drywall pops and possible debris on the floor or like a toddler digging into the wall. And that is because for you it would be new, it would be novel. I share all this because Jesus is doing something in this scene that we have more or less been habituated to. That is, um, 
we no longer see that Jesus is turning water into wine as a, as a novel thing. It is something we know. We know this story, whether you grew up in and around the church or not. This is like the classic thing. You could drive down uh, the 80, may, maybe any major interstate, and you will see like a, a billboard that says truth, one eight hundred truth, but then above it is just like a faucet coming out of nowhere, and it's a tap of water, and there's a glass of wine. I don't know what that imagery is supposed to depict, but it's as though okay, hold on, that's that's the depiction of truth: is water, wine, all these things. My point is, this is a familiar moment, a scene that we know. But the gospel, according to John, it's more beautiful, it is more complex. It's like honey to our lips, that is, if we're willing to taste and see, because it drips with far more goodness than we give it credit. And so my goal this morning is pretty simple. It is uh, to bring us to the contours of this story afresh, uh, contours that I'm going to describe in four ways. Uh, double blessing, zeal, a sparring match, and new wine. Double blessing, zeal, a sparring match, and new wine. And so with a little vigor in hand, we're going to check out these contours. How's that sound? Okay, let me offer a little word of prayer and we'll get into it. Father, if indeed something can run over and over, if you can be the one who leads us to the still waters, to the green pastures, if you indeed are the good shepherd, come and be that among us. That's not our responsibility to do that. You are the one who leads us. And so would you help us to be the ones who might actually hear your voice and respond? So Jesus, come help stir up our hearts. I pray, Jesus, that you would be seen more clearly than perhaps we expected. Would you give us the gift of your presence, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you're taking notes, we're in uh, double blessing. If you turn back to verse 1, you'll notice John's opening line, and it is this, the first four words, on the third day. On the third day. See, not only is John this master storyteller who's able to take in like the, the scope of the cosmos, he's able to squish that down into human form and the word takes on flesh. This is John. But he's also priming the pump for another third day down the line. Perhaps you know this. This is like John's priming the pump, um, uh, like spoiler alert for the Easter story. This is, there's another third day coming and he's queuing it up. It's like John is just squishing all the significance and meaning he can into each of the nooks and crannies of the story. So he's pointing forward, but he's also doing another thing. He's, he's doing a callback to the third day, to Israel's foundation story, to the story of blessing. And just to, to grasp the gravitas of the, the third day. Uh, if you would, if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way back to Genesis chapter one. I just wanna, um, I just wanna read these verses with you. This is Genesis one, uh, really to 13, and then a little straggler of 14. Genesis one, one starts like this, you likely know. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above. And it was so. 
and God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so, and God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees in the land that bear fruit and seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so, and the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning. The third day, verse 14, and God said, and it goes on. Essentially what you see are these spaces that God separates according to his declaration. He says they're good, and in these spaces, God begins to fill with life. And then on the final day, the sixth day, God's going to take up the ground. He's going to breathe in to the dirt. This is like the ever-stooping God taking up the dust, the dirt and divine breath come together and humanity is formed. On the first day, light breaks forth and God declares that the day is good. Let's see. On the first day, light breaks forth and God declares that it is Okay, now here it is. And on the second day, the sky takes its place between the water and the ground and God declares Interesting. Did he? So I don't know if you noticed this, but, uh, but God withholds his declaration of good on the second day. You would expect that if God declared the first day good and then the third day and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and it's all really good and then rest comes in, in like the holy and divine Sabbath, um, what's going on? Well, it seems as though God withholds the declaration of good on the second day and then releases a double blessing on the third day. So John's forecasting on the third day to talk about that one day that's coming, the resurrection, but he's also looking back to the doubly blessed third day. And as such, it was custom among Israelites, Jewish people of that day, to hold a wedding on the third day. So it was like a Tuesday, and then they would just let it rip. I mean, they would have week-long parties. This is how they went down. It's not one evening of celebration. It's multiple days, dancing, song, singing, blessed be the Lord our God, you know, like this kind of language. On the third day, or as we read in our teaching text, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. But before we get to the water to wine bit, John has now set the table for this whole event to take on like cosmic significance, cosmic blessing, the double blessing is in front of us. Now, I know I'm like a bit of a Bible nerd, and so this gets me excited, but let me just give you permission to be excited by this scene right here, okay? So like we've all, we've front into this, this is clarity, okay? Yeah, we're crystal on that. John is front-loading this with blessing, cosmic significance, claims about Jesus' identity have preceded this. We see, this shouldn't surprise us that all this blessing is packed in here because we've seen that Jesus is the divine word taking on flesh to take up his residence among us, to display the glory and beauty of God. And though that ought not surprise us, this should still get our attention. And this actually brings us to the second contour of our story, zeal. On the surface, zeal is kind of what it sounds like when a bee says buzz, like you get what that means. Zeal has that same kind of effect, though I know those are different uh, functions and everything. Uh, 
It's passion, it's fervor, it's enthusiasm and zeal. All of those things are balled into one. And when there's a biblical inflection, zeal is like this. This is how Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, your favorite Bible dictionary, describes it. Righteous zeal is manifested chiefly in the interest of maintaining the covenantal bond between Yahweh and Israel. Stay with me. It's the display of fervent devotion or jealousy on behalf of valued possessions, including persons perceived to be under threat from rival claimants. Now, I imagine that's exactly how you would describe zeal if asked on a quiz or something like that. No, no, that's a little wordy. I get that. Uh, so let me just show you how zeal works itself out in the biblical imagination rather than just leave you with a definition. When we uh, survey the scriptures, we see that zeal is in fact embodied. It's particularly embodied in a priest named Phineas. Now, if you've been reading through the Hebrew Bible and you've like wandered through Leviticus, you make your way to Numbers and you find yourself in Numbers 25, you will be uh, shocked because there's a priest who takes a spear and runs it through some people. This is actually, a lot of the conversations I get to have as a pastor are about these types of scenes. The questions usually go, if God is good, how can the people of God be the ones who are running people through with spears? This doesn't seem to add up. Stay with me. Numbers 25, if you know the story, it is quite graphic. I kind of described it. Uh, so here are the cliff notes if you don't know it. The, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. And Moses, who has led the people out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt into this place on their way to the land of promise, is with these people. And, and the people of Israel have these hearts that consistently turn inward. They're like longing for the garlic and the leeks of their slavery. They're like, it was good. We had the meat. And so God continues to meet them where they're at as God is the ever-stooping God, accommodating us in our desires. And so God meets the people there. And yet, the continual call is that they would remain Loyal, not compliance, but loyalty, that they would see God's love and affection was what drove him to like remove the shackles of bondage and slavery and bring them into promised land, to bring them into a place of love. And so the people wander and Moses calls for them to remain loyal to the Lord their God, but his pleas continue and increasingly fall on deaf ears. The people would rather listen to their desires, their appetites for sex and comfort and power rather than listen to the words of God. The, the prophet Hosea later on in the, in the history of Israel will reflect back on this moment. Listen to how he describes this in Hosea 9.10. This is like the, the, the voice of Yahweh speaking his grief. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated, they, they set themselves apart, they made themselves unique, not for Yahweh, but to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Phineas would not stand for this vile intrusion. And he stepped in to uphold the integrity of the people. See, we often come to the scriptures and we, uh, we read you, in the New Testament and the letters, and we think you means me. What we neglect is to consider the corporate identity of the people of God. And, and I know that we live in 
the times we do, individualism, blah, blah, blah. There is a reality to how we see our family units. Even a hundred years ago, how we considered a family system, you would likely live intergenerational, you would be around your family, if not far from, the land would be split up and you would, like, grandma and grandpa would live not down the street or in another state, but like next door, if not in your house, literally next door, like the room over. But we see ourselves as individuals. That's not the story we come to in the scriptures. It's a story of corporate identity. And so if this person is coming in, it is literally like a cancer that is going to take the life of those cells and turn it against the body. Phineas will not stand. He said, we are going to cut this out. And so he removed the transgressor via a spear. And again, I know that is graphic, and yet it is Phineas's zeal that preserves the people. And when you go to lunch today, just take this out and devotionally go through Numbers 25. It'll warm your heart for Jesus. That's a joke. You're okay. It's okay to laugh, folks. Um, to later generations, they're going to look at Phineas, and, and they are, it's not, they're not going to idolize him, but they're going to look to him and say, that's what it is. That's what it is to remain loyal to Yahweh in the face of compromise. That's what it looks like. And eventually, there would be people who would take up, they would, they would say, we want to embody that type of zeal. They would be known as zealots. Now, apart from uh, this being interesting history to me, um, why share any of this? Like, what does zeal have to do with Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee? Well, curiously, zeal in Hebrew, the language and really the, the, like the substructure of how the people of Israel see the world, zeal in Hebrew is the word kenah. Did you hear it? Zeal is the Hebrew word kenah. Now, to be sure, historians and like scholars, they disagree about the significance and meaning and location of Cana and Galilee. They don't know if this is where Cana really was. Was it in Galilee? Was it by a mountain? What's, uh, it's kind of a guessing game. So it's just conjecture. So this is now me riffing. But what's interesting is in the very next scene, Jesus goes to the temple to, to clear out the temple. And it's said that Jesus will have zeal for his father's house. So if John is chalking full significance, he's like pumping significance as much as he can into this passage, foregrounding all that we ought to expect of Jesus. Isn't it curious that Jesus is here on a doubly blessed day in a city marked by zeal, Cana in Galilee. John is like priming the pump of her expectation. But then things go sideways, or as John records it in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Which brings us to our third contour, the little sparring match. I mean, could, could you imagine on your wedding day, if indeed that's a part of your story, or you go to one of your friend's weddings, or it's like one of those moments where you are just the date of someone, or you get invited to a wedding, or it's like you're obligated to go to this wedding, and the only thing that's making it fun is the DJ who knows, like you're waiting for the electric slide. That is your, you're like, everybody else hates the electric but I'm here for it. And the DJ has like some sort of technical snafu, and there's no electric slide. Could you imagine the moment? 
Now, I, I just have to say, um, our wedding was, was small. And this is the obligatory pastor talking about a wedding and, a, you know, the, the wedding at Cana. So just bear with me here. Our wedding was small. Things went pretty well. However, I do know that for some people, their weddings do not go well. <laughs> I know that there are moments when the keg will not be tapped because they don't have the right tap. Sorrow fills the room, depending on your context and religious history, etc. cetera. Um, I, I know that there are moments when like dresses don't show up or the things that you expect to be there. How much expectation do we put into this day? A billion dollar industry, that's the type of expectation. We want, it's gonna be the most glamorous, beautiful, the best day, the, the penultimate day of our life because the ultimate day is when we were born. going to be the best day. And then, of course, the, the smallest of things throw a wrinkle in all of it. But could you imagine the wine running out? See, what ought to be blessed, what ought to be doubly blessed, crisis breaks in. Let me just say it this way. Have any of you had a crisis? Let's just do a little participation here, folks. Any of you had a crisis? Okay, let's get a little more, an emotional crisis. Keep your hand up. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the body of Christ. So it's like, you're like, I'm new here. I'm not sharing. Like, I don't trust you yet, bro. <laughs> I'll not disclose my emotional crisis. Maybe to my therapist. But we're not even there yet. So let's go. Like, okay, yeah, so we've probably had an emotional crisis. Anybody here with a family crisis? Okay, head nods are, I'll receive those. Relational crisis, an economic crisis. Okay, good, we're tracking. This is a scene chock full of all of those things, emotional, familial, relational, economic, all of those break into this scene that's supposed to be doubly blessed. And this scene, it's not just an abstract moment where Jesus shows power and starts his earthly ministry. No, no, no. This is a metaphor for our lives. See, moments of celebration are often littered with moments of crisis because, as the text says, the wine runs out. The wine runs out on your health. You or a family member goes in for a routine checkup and what they come back with is a scan or a blood test that says it is far worse than we expected. Like the, the wine runs out. Or the wine runs out on your finances because COVID and recession or everything else and you feel stuck because the wine has run out. Or the wine runs out on that one friendship because certainly your friendship, your bond was bigger than a mask. But in fact, do you realize that the ideology had gotten so deep into yours or their heart that it was a dividing line? The wine ran out on that relationship. The wine ran out on your business. The wine ran out on your marriage. Whatever you want to say, the wine runs out. And moments of celebration are often where we note it because our expectations are high. And then crisis breaks in. And I think, I think if we allow ourselves to feel the strain of this passage by mapping even our own experience of crises onto it, we might just then ask, where is the wine running out? We might allow the sobering reality of this passage to come crashing in. So can you name it? Like, can you name the place in your life, either in this season or in past seasons, where the wine is running out? See, what if the church was the type of place where we experienced healing rather than just more hurt and baggage? What if these were the type of questions that we were invited into and we didn't have to have the quote-unquote right answer, but we were invited to explore where is the wine running out? Can I name it? And then what do you do if you can? Well, this is, this is actually where this passage broke open for me. See, I, I would invite us to look to Mary 
And in Protestant spaces, we're like so deathly afraid of venerating Mary, like making much of Mary that we just ignore her in this passage. But I want to invite you to look to Mary. Hear, hear this exchange again in its entirety. On the third day, doubly blessed, a wedding took place in a place of zeal in Galilee. Jesus's mom was there. How do you feel when your mom shows up? Now, so I don't know what your relationship is to your mom, but if my mom shows up, it's like all of the, like, she can say something to me and it calls me to attention or she corrects me and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like everything from my youth bubbles up. Jesus' mom is there and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Is she venting? Is she like, did you hear? Jesus, did you hear? The wine, it, it ran out. It's gonna be shame. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What do you notice? Like when the wine runs out, where does Mary turn? See, I invite us to look to Mary because when the wine runs out, she turns to Jesus. And the question, the inflection point of that movement comes to us is like, where do we go? And this might sound pithy or thin or like low hanging, but why else are we following Jesus if not to say that there is something that feels like crisis and death and Jesus is the one who is in here to break into the crisis and death and release life. Why else are we doing this? So when the wine is running out, where, where do you turn? Where do you go? Maybe it's that you turn inward and you shut down or you turn outward and you self-medicate. Maybe it's bourbon, maybe it's Ben and Jerry's, but there is like, there's another way, another way to face the crisis and it's not a thing or a thought or a medicate. It is like the person of Jesus, the abiding and reigning living king. So where do you turn? I, I love this exchange. I didn't love this exchange before this past week, but I love this exchange now because it emboldens me to turn to Jesus, not based on who I am, but based on who he is. See, when Mary's visited, when Mary's visited by God's messenger in Luke 1, the messenger declares to her that her son, this Jesus will be this, check this out, great, Jesus will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This to a teenage girl. She knows who Jesus is. In her bones, she knows who Jesus is. No one else at the wedding knows who Jesus is. Not like she does, not like Mary does. So I invite us to turn to Mary because Mary is here to remind us that Jesus is the one who will be called Son of the Most High God. She is here to give us crystal clarity on who Jesus is so that we too, like her, might turn to him in a moment of crisis when the wine runs out. That's the sparring match. It's almost like Mary, Jesus' mom, is reminding him, like, I actually know who you are, bro. Step up your game. See, perhaps Mary sees something that Jesus is unwilling to see, or possibly Jesus knows that this type of involvement, if he does step in, it'll set in place a cascade of events that he cannot undo. We don't know. Either way, there is no more wine. And I want you to hear the final word from Mary, Jesus' mom, in this scene. 
do whatever he tells you. Now, one of the ways I love to read the Gospels, and I'd invite you to do the same, is imaginatively. Go figure, we actually bring the fullness of our imagination to the scriptures. But like, you, you, like picture yourself in the scene. My mom, um, she was a young mom. I have two older half-sisters. My mom had them when she was 16 and 17. My mom had to like basically hustle. And so my mom has what you would call chutzpah. Do whatever, I'm like, when I picture this scene, it's like Jesus gives his mom the reasonable response, woman, like, why do you involve me? My time has not come. And she's like, looks over at the, at, at the attendants in the wedding and just goes, do whatever he tells you. And then just walks out. No, like, the conversation is over. That's just how I see it playing out. <laughs> but it sounds good, doesn't it? Like, I imagine, just. This brings us to our final contour, is the new wine. But we know how the story goes, don't we? <laughs> like the water is turned into wine, the party goes on, Jesus holds back the shame to release the blessing. Come on now, like that's the sermon we've heard on this, right? Jesus holds it back, and that's true. These are true things. Jesus does turn the water into wine. He actually, it like initiates, inaugurates. He calls on Isaiah 25, the great banquet of the Messiah is gonna come in. It's gonna be the best, the choice wine. Yes, all of that is packed in there. And yet, it's here where we assume that we know the end of the story, that we need to rehabituate ourselves to Jesus. I would dare say that it's in the moments that we actually have, like, assume we know the end that we would do well to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he is doing. Because yes, indeed, the water is turned into wine. The miraculous sign appears, foreshadowing the great banquet. It's all there in the passage. But did you notice Jesus' words? Right after the sparring match, Jesus says these simple words, fill the jars. We ought to notice the sign. John's going to have a slew of signs that come forward that point to the messianic identity. These are significant theological blah, blah, blah. I'm not, maybe not blah, blah, blah. Yes, they're good. <laughs> I want us to hear, Jesus has said, fill the jars. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, fill the jars? Now turn to the person you left out and say, fill the jars. Was anybody just, like, to, to all of you who um, had no neighborly love, let me get you. Fill the jars. Jesus calls the attendants to fill up ceremonial washing jars, and, and they do it to the brim. I love that little note. And this, were, this, this would be upwards of 180 gallons of wine. There's no, did you think about that? There's no hose. There's no tap. This is tedious time-consuming, and I imagine frustrating work, but Jesus' mom said, do whatever he tells you, and apparently Jesus' mom has some chutzpah, and so they are not going to defy her, plus the wine has run out. Fill the jars. 180 gallons of wine, that would be something like 900 bottles of wine. There's likely, scholars guess, 80 to 100 guests at this wine. So Jesus shows up and he says, like, Oprah, like, you get a case, and you get a case, and you get a case. This is, by the way, at the end of the, of the time. Everyone's a little loose already. We'll get to that in a moment. See, the truth is, like, we want the new wine. If you're going to be around, like, if, you get, if we get to hang out, what I'm praying, Jesus like, I want the new wine. 
Like I want, I want it something fierce. Like I, I don't know, I don't know what else to do. It's just as like I, I love theology, I love doctrine, I love these things, I love the church. I want, but I'm like, I, I want the new wine. Because I don't want to live on the stories of the old one. Like, I don't want to live on the stories of past generations who've experienced the blessing and love and outpouring of Jesus. I want, I want Gateway to have some stories. I want you to say, like, hey, I was held in bondage to this thing, but because of the grace of Jesus through the community of the saints, like, I was released. I don't know how else to explain it, but it was like, it was like liquid love pouring into my heart, and I am free from that. Those are the stories that I think we would, like, do well to receive. And so I'm saying, Jesus, bring the new wine. We want the new wine. And that's beautiful. Let's seek it. Let's pray for it. Yes and amen. Um, but, but more often and perhaps more ris- realistically, the invitation is to go and fill the jar, to do the tedious work, to join, to participate, to join Jesus in the methodical work, just like the art of living, <laughs> is to fill the jar. Like if the wine is indeed running out on your marriage or a friend's marriage, perhaps for them or for you, it is to reach out to the therapist, to fill the jar. If like the past patterns of sin are rearing their head afresh, if the addictive behaviors are there, perhaps it is the time to go to the meeting, to fill the jar. If indeed maybe the wine is running out on that relationship and you are just languishing, you are lonely, perhaps it is the time to join a group. There are lovely people leading Groups, like maybe it is a time to just show up, to move to the edge of your comfort zone, to participate, to fill the jar, because it seems as though participation is what precedes the new wine coming. So we may want the new wine. And I do think that Holy Spirit does, by like this measure of grace, just fill the thing up. And we didn't do anything, and it's like just gift upon gift, grace upon grace. And yet I think more often what we see is participation is where the new wine comes. And for some of us, participation is like it is a matter of discipline over distraction. Like for some of us, we, we actually know this. We're hearing, you're hearing this, and you're like, yeah, Okay. There, there, there's where it is. Those times, of, those times of my day that were like blocked out where I actually put it in my schedule to like abide, to remain. That is like, that's where the spirit is moving you. You're like, yes and amen. But for some of us, and perhaps I think what John is stirring up in this passage is, is that we don't need to try harder. It's not discipline over distraction. And here's, here's what I mean. When the attendants take the new wine to the master of ceremonies, He declares that the best has been saved for last, which is one of two things. It's either a celebratory and honoring word, which is often have, I've heard it, or it is an accusation of waste. Now, I don't know which one is right. I'm really curious about the latter, though, because you see, the guests are already a bit loose. The master of ceremony says as much. Yeah, this is, you you bring the best out, you impress everyone, and when everyone is drunk, then you bring out the cheap stuff because they're not going to notice. But what you've done is you have brought the best I have ever had. Why would you do that? Like, why, why would you lavish blessing on something that is too far gone? See, so often pride is framed as something that is boastful and arrogant, thinking too much of yourself. But self-dismissal is also a form of pride. 
It's, it's the statement that why would God bless this thing, namely you, because I'm too far gone. See, there's this curious thing between guilt and shame. Guilt says what you have done is wrong, but shame says that you are wrong because of what you have done. It takes the thing that has happened and it like begins to creep its way into your body, setting its roots down into how you see yourself. See, for some of us, we need to take up discipline over and against distraction, but for some of us, we need to hear that what Jesus is saying in this moment is, it's worth it. Like, do we think we have the ability to declare what is and what is not worth blessing? The audacity to claim, yes, you can or cannot, like, do this. Apparently, our brokenness and sin and vice and arrogance and criticism and self-loathing and laziness and bitterness, that is the place, the places, the circumstances that are ripe for transformation. Fill the jars. Let the blessing flow. See, in the end, the point of all of this is not the party. It's not the miraculous. The point is indeed the sign that the sign points forward to a blessing that, that will flow. The whole story is a sign, a signal pointing forward to a better reality because you see, as we mentioned before, a day not too far off in Jesus's ministry will come when it looks like the wine has run out on Jesus's own life. But on the third day, the day of true double blessing, what looks like death will be swallowed up in victory. And this is where we say amen. And right now, I think that John is inviting us as a community to say, taste and see. Like, I, don't, I actually don't know what your self-talk is. I don't know the architecture of your thought life. But if it's anything like mine, what comes in is I am my worst critic. I'll go back and I'll watch these things. And I'm like, I'm still doing the thing with my hands. And I'm sweating. What's going on? <laughs> And in the end, I'll ask this question, like, what, like, why would God lavish his blessing on this thing that's too far gone? So I don't know what the lie is that you have believed, but let me just say, in Jesus' name, that is not how God, like, he actually says, you are worth blessing. That is the pronouncement that we see in this. And you're like, yeah, but it's a wedding, and it was so far ago. No, 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 you are worth blessing, and I'm not saying that you are enough and you just need to recognize it and that is salvation. No, the king of the cosmos has broken into the crisis to release blessing. But it's too much. Yeah, it probably is. But it's wasteful. Yeah, you're right. And that is the type of the love that God has lavished on the church in Jesus. That is the type of love that we get to step into. And so John says, taste and see. Taste and see. 